Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. I started performing so young and I started recording so young. I had no idea what kind of artist I wanted to be and what kind of things I wanted to put out. And it wasn't really until COVID that I paused for air at all. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Piano Whisperer. With me today is Ariel Pocock. Ariel has received international acclaim as an equally captivating jazz pianist, vocalist, and composer. Critics have described her work as having, quote, levels of stylistic and emotional breadth and artistic depth that few of her peers can match, per the Ottawa Citizen and that she has, quote, true facility for sinewy jazz piano and breezy, achingly plain-spoken vocal chops. Seattle Times. And Access.com says Ariel is the real deal, a blazing combination of chops, stunning original artistry, and hidden emotional depth. Some of her notable performances include the Tokyo Jazz Festival, the Montreal Jazz Festival, the Quebec International Jazz Festival, the Vancouver International Jazz Festival, the Rochester Jazz Festival, the Gilmore International Keyboard Festival, the Port-au-Prince Jazz Festival, Jazz at Lincoln Center Shanghai, the Birdland Jazz Club, and many more. At 18, Ariel received a Stamps Family Scholarship to study jazz piano performance at the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami, where she graduated in 2015. There, she worked with Martin Bejarano, Shelley Berg, and Gonzalo Rubalcaba, during her sophomore year of college, Ariel recorded her first album, Touchstone, with Larry Grenadier, Julian Lage, Seamus Blake, and Eric Harlan. The album was produced by Matt Pearson and released on Just In Time Records. She recorded a second album, also on Just In Time Records, Living in Twilight, with Jim Doxis on drums and Adrian Vidati on bass. Both albums received favorable reviews in Downbeat and Jazz Times and spent several weeks in the top 10 radio spots on the Jazz Week play charts. Area's original arrangements and compositions draw inspiration from a wide array of sources. Great American songbook, Cuban and Brazilian folk music, modern jazz composers like Chick Corea and Brad Maldow, and songwriters like Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, and Paul Simon. In addition to performing, Ariel is a busy educator. Based in Durham, North Carolina, she is an adjunct professor of jazz piano at both the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and East Carolina University. She also teaches jazz voice, arranging, and theory. In the past, she has been on faculty at the Stanford Jazz Workshop, the Brevard Jazz Institute, and the Northeast Jazz and Recording Camp, and teaches every summer at the Jefferson Jazz Institute in Roanoke, Virginia. Ariel, welcome. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> so you grew up in a home with classical pianist parents. Yes. And you discovered jazz in that environment. So can you tell us how that happened? Sure. You mentioned I grew up with two classical pianists, so I really never had a chance. I was just surrounded by piano and pianists and piano repertoire from literally day one. <laughs> yeah. So Piano was always a very natural thing for me. I don't remember ever not playing piano. Wow. So I, I don't feel like I really had a clear grasp of genre when I was young. It was just 
oh, you hear a tune on the radio, you sit down and you play it on the piano. And when I was young, I think to my parents' credit, they were not my primary teachers, which was good because I think that would have maybe dissuaded me from wanting to pursue it. <laughs> yeah. But they got me some great teachers. And when I was, I think, you know, I was seven or eight, really, some friend of a friend was over at a house and uh, was just playing some stride piano. And I hadn't really heard that before in real life. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. I don't know what they were playing or what song it was or anything, but I remember being that young and trying to replicate it, you know, and just sitting down and copying it. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents said, oh, wow, she's taking to this a lot more than she's taking to us sitting around practicing Bach and Beethoven. So let's find her a teacher that'll take an eight-year-old and teach her jazz piano, which is what they did. So I had this great teacher and I was eight years old in LA named Jeff Labner, mm. great jazz pianist in LA area. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, he just got me started and I started listening to Ella Fitzgerald and Oscar and Art Tatum. And that was just it. You know, it, it really took very little exposure to jazz itself because I had already been around so much music that it just felt like a very natural transition. Yeah. Well, you had all of this classical music around you, but it took that jazz vibe, I guess, to say, no, that's what I want to do. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. It was definitely the thing that felt like it was special to me and it was different than what I heard my parents doing. So I think because it was in this familiar, safe world, but it was a little bit new and exciting. I think that's what really did it at that age. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you mentioned on your web bio that by the age of eight, you already adored the music of Ella Fitzgerald, George Shearing, and Oscar Peterson. (laughs) Yeah. And then you made a really funny follow-up comment that this made you tragically unpopular in (laughs) elementary school. So is there a story behind that or is that just Ariel being funny? Well, I don't know if there are that many other eight-year-olds in the world that were walking around listening to George Shearing on their Walkman over and over. (laughs) I did. (laughs) And I thought it was great. And uh, I was being a little bit silly because I think inherently writing bios about yourself is a little bit silly. Yeah. So I did have friends. And fourth grade was a good year for me. Fifth grade, not so much because Mm. everybody else was hitting puberty and I was not. But I was still really into George Shearing. So it took a few years. That's hysterical. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So then you came to Seattle Mm -hmm. and and you began to flourish. Can you tell us about that? I know you studied with Michael Stegner, who is known for helping artists to discover and be themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey in Seattle and then with him? Sure. Yeah. So I was just starting middle school when my family moved to Seattle. So I started taking with Michael. I was 10 or 11. I was very young. And right away, he was just wonderful and really encouraged me to challenge myself, but still be myself, which not all teachers will do. Right. And I'm really grateful for that. But beyond just working with Michael in my private lessons, Seattle, of course, has a thriving jazz education scene. And so I quickly was sort of funneled into the school jazz band system and doing the contests and performance opportunities that abounded through that. So that was great. I was just playing a lot. And, you know, I had to learn how to read, which was sort of traumatic at the time and (laughs) good in the long run. And I just, you know, kind of hit the ground running when I was in sixth or seventh grade, really, and just kept doing it straight through high school and then straight into college. So yeah, it was, uh, it was great. It was a great place to be a young musician. Absolutely. So now you said you had to learn how to read. Tell me about that. That's a spontaneous (laughs) question here. Because you grew up in a classical music home where that's the primary focus. So sure. How did that not happen and then happen? I was a great faker and I had good enough years that I could just BS my way through just about anything until I got to, Uh, you know, situations where I couldn't just 
hide in the other room and listen to my mom practice something 15 times and then sit down and pretend like I was reading it myself. So, wow. Yeah. I wondered. Okay. Uh-huh. So <laughs> then you mentioned on your website that you tried the New York thing for a while. Uh, can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So when I finished music school at the Frost School of Music in Miami, as many people do at that age, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with myself. Mm-hmm. And so I moved back to North Carolina for a few years where my parents were living at the time and worked there and just taught privately and things like that. And after a while, I just, you know, due to a combination of personal and career things, I just felt burnt out and I needed a change. So I threw all my stuff in the car and drove to a terrible apartment in Brooklyn and paid out the nose for a few months and, and gigged. Yeah. Um, but it was really stupid because I was also still working at the school that I'm still employed at, UNC mm. Greensboro. So I would take either the bus or the Amtrak back to North Carolina every single week oh, wow. and teach my lessons and then take the you know Chinatown night bus back and play a gig in New York. And that was not sustainable, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Any parent will tell you that is not sustainable. Yeah. It is not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. But still, I think it's probably a good experience and something that you can bring to the teaching table and stuff. And we'll come back to that mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So now you played some big festivals and famous venues as quite a young artist and a female artist at that. And jazz historically has been sort of male dominated though there are some obvious exceptions to that. But how was that for you, playing these famous festivals and venues as a young woman? Do you think you would have felt differently if you were a guy? Did you feel that you had to prove yourself in any way, or were you just comfortable being you? Oh, no, of course. I will always have a chip on my shoulder about it, and Mm. that's coming from somebody who, by and large, I've had a very good experience, and I haven't encountered a lot of the, quite frankly, the abuse that some of my peers have I think in some ways, I did always really hold myself to this impossibly high standard because I did feel like I had to prove myself, which, mm-hmm. you know, looking back, I wish I could just tell myself to focus more on enjoying it and enjoying the music and not feeling so anxious to prove myself mm-hmm. and prove to everyone that I wasn't just there because I was a woman and they needed to fill up a, a woman quota, <laughs> which, wow. you know, I know that that was kind of the case in sometimes and even to the point of people saying, oh, yeah, we needed to bring in a girl. <laughs> Which, you know, that... That never occurred to me. Sure, yeah. So that catches up with you, yeah. Okay. But now I'm at the point where, for a lot of reasons, which we can talk about later, but I'm glad that I had the experiences that I did, and I wouldn't really encourage someone else to do it the way that I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of lonely. Oh, man. (laughs) It was just always around men all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's some mentoring possibilities that can come out of that, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, in the All About Jazz review of your first album, Touchstone, Dan Belowski said, Touchstone isn't a pure jazz album and Pocock isn't a pure jazz player. She could be if she wanted to, but that doesn't appear to be what she's working toward. So broadly speaking, I feel like you've developed two different sides of your artistry, a singer-songwriter side and a straight-ahead jazz side though the lines are somewhat blurry, Mm. do you identify with one side more than the other or do they both fall under the category of General Ariel Pocock, the artist? Sure. That's a question that if you'd asked me this a year ago, I would have been really agonizing over. But in a post-COVID world, you can classify me as whatever you want. Mm. (laughs) I don't think it matters. And, And I think it also falls into the broader conversation that's been happening in the jazz world about whether we should even be using the term jazz when it's, you know, Black American music, first Mm. and foremost. Mm -hmm. So I think that if I were to have to reclassify the styles that I've recorded in, you know, I'd say 
I do have a lot of singer songwriter stuff that is coming from more, you know, of a Randy Newman, Joni Mitchell framework. Mm-hmm. And then I do have stuff that's coming from the tradition of Black American music. My heroes, like I said, are Ella and, and Monk and Bud Powell and so many more. Sure. So, yeah, I, I think if you want to talk about can you trace back the influences on my music, then yes. But in terms of how I build myself now, I, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. So does that cause any marketing headaches for you just in trying to sort that out or not really? Uh, well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see when, when the world is marketable again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 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 So I want to take this time to play two pieces for our listeners. First, I want to play the title cut of your first recording, Touchstone, which demonstrates your vocal ability in more of a singer songwriter capacity. Mm-hmm. Though Dana Kurtz wrote the song back in 97, you definitely performed it as if you wrote it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I think you knocked it out of the park. Thank you. The second shorter clip I'll play is the improv section of the very thought of you from your second album, Living in Twilight. And this really shows another dimension of you, I think, swinging in a very authentic way. People who aren't really in the jazz world may not know what it means to swing hard, but you really do. It's super authentic. And oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, th- I think it's rare to have such distinctly different, well-developed styles. So let's listen now. And before we do, I want to thank our sponsor, Classic Pianos, for making this episode possible. You know, sometimes alone on nights like this. When the moon slants just right And bounces naked light around my room I think of you I think of you It's a girl who holds back her secrets with delicate chains But it takes a generous woman to break you through her heart again I still think of you Unfold. I knew you'd be my touchstone. I could see us getting old. I'm late 
So while I was listening to both albums in their entireties, I took notes along the way, and I wanted to read what I wrote because each album explores an array of different styles, grooves, and emotions, and so my notes are not at all cohesive. So my comments depended entirely on the feeling of the moment. So here's what I said. Again, these are random comments. Who can scat like that at her age? (laughs) Eerie Ella influence. Does she have perfect pitch? No. No? Okay. (laughs) And then I went on and said, Nora Jones meets Bonnie Raitt. I heard the Bonnie Raitt pain. Improv reminiscent of Ray Brown trio with Benny Green. (laughs) Keith Jarrett without the moaning. (laughs) Nora Jones on steroids. And tradition meets modern. So those are my stream of conscious comments. But in the high-res audio review, they put it this way in describing your second album, Living in Twilight. The album transports a twilight mood between shouting for joy and nearly dying of sorrow. Hmm. That, to me, summed up both records, actually. So did you identify at all with those comments? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, first of all, I'm very flattered by your stream of consciousness. It's very kind of you. And it's really, you know, validating to hear you mention the names of so many people that all are huge influences and heroes of mine. So that's a good feeling. (laughs) Good. And then in terms of the, yeah, jumping for joy and sorrow, I don't remember exactly what they said, but yeah, I think that's very close to how that felt making that album. I was 24 when I made it. So mm-hmm. it was four years ago. And it was during a you know interesting time in my life. I was going up to Montreal to play a lot. And I was traveling and starting to tour a lot. But at the same time, I was still teaching all these little kids, you know, just private piano lessons in, in North Carolina and kind of all over the place with my career where half of it is teaching and then half of it is on paper a little more glamorous, but all of it sort of added up to um, I probably was a little overworked <laughs> mm-hmm. at yep. that time, but also having these really amazing experiences performing and then, you know, getting back on the bus and going home to teach. And then also during that time, my father was very ill and passed away right after that album came out. So I think that definitely came out in those song choices and the arrangement choices and just sort of the intangible things that I put into that album without knowing it. I think, yeah, some, some really high highs and some really low lows for sure. Yeah. Now, are you referring exclusively to Living in Twilight? Oh, yeah. I guess I was just talking about that second album. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like another question that kind of nagged at me as I was listening was that the second album had a different vibe than the first, almost as if you had written and arranged it from a different inner place. That's what I was going to ask you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And there we go. So then if you could have it your way artistically, what what would life look like? Right now? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I guess this is the time where I impart that I, <laughs> I'm at a period of transition in my career. I'm actually uh, applying to medical school. So I'm wow. taking all these science classes, but I'm still teaching jazz. I'm still teaching adjunct at my two universities. So I'm in this really interesting place now where half of my life is physics class and half of it is teaching jazz arranging and doing jazz related things in COVID times, which, you know, is not great, but I'm hoping next year I can play a little more. So I think ideally from here on out, I just play and record exactly what I want and I don't worry about marketing it, you know? (laughs) That's a good place to be actually. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know yet. That's a really good place to be, to be able to do that and do it because you love it the way you want to do it. Right. All that kind of stuff. The thing that I would see myself doing that I think would make me the happiest is, you know, having my my job and my career and have that be outside of music, but then, you know, sneaking into the studio to make an album yeah. once every year or two and just kind of have no pressure on it because 
I started performing so young and I started recording so young. I had no idea what kind of artist I wanted to be and what kind of things I wanted to put out. And it wasn't really until COVID that I paused for air at all. (laughs) And now I feel a lot of fondness for especially the first album because I was so young. I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I just kind of threw everything at the wall. And I think you feel that on the album a little bit. But at the same time, it was very genuine. And I think had I been a little bit more marketing savvy, I would have really picked just one direction and gone with it. And I probably would be, you know, rich now, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, people like the Nora Jones stuff and people like the Diana Krall stuff. But I just knew that wasn't quite what I wanted to pigeonhole myself as yet. So I don't know. I mean, who knows? (laughs) So how do you see yourself artistically at this time? What directions do you want to pursue more? Sure. Yeah. So I think I liked that you played, you know, my kind of singer songwriter side and then the more swinging side, because that's definitely the two camps that I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. And the little projects that I have still going over this year that I have kept up with even through COVID sort of reflect that I've been writing just solo material just for myself. That's very singer songwriter with a weird harmonic twist on it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I have a few duo projects here and there with people that I've recorded with a little bit where we just kind of do more swinging material or more straight ahead material that we write or do covers of more modern stuff. So I'd really love to maybe do an album where it's all duo and it's all very straight ahead and it's just instrumental. And then I maybe do a couple songs of just singing and playing. So, you know, kind of uh, not trying to shoehorn it all into one thing like I did for my other albums and kind of more just having one project be be this thing and then the next one is the other thing, (laughs) if that makes sense. Well, sure, it makes sense. But it's also very normal for the first album, right? Is so important. Right, right. It's like your life up to that moment. And then, yeah, you (laughs) throw it all in there. It's like, you don't want to leave anything out. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So you see yourself writing and recording forever? Is that accurate? I'd sure like to, yeah. I mean, it brings me a lot of joy and nothing makes me happier musically than, you know, just hearing from somebody that they connected with a song or that something I put out brought them comfort. So I don't want to give that up for sure. Oh, it's incredible. You've got to be full of wisdom way beyond your years at this point. So is there any wisdom you'd like to offer like budding musicians? I'm sure you do in your privates, but just for the audience? Oh, man. Sure. That's a fun question because I work with so many young musicians right now as a teacher, but it's in very specialized roles where I'm just, you know, talking about here's how to work Sibelius and here's how to, you know, do this drop two voicing. So (laughs) it's nice to take a step back from that. I guess if I could boil it down into one thing is maybe to keep an attitude that you're not too good for any gig, Mm. but also you can work hard and be deserving of any gig. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yeah, don't feel like you're above anything because you can always learn something. And then at the same time, there's such a culture of mandatory self-deprecation to the point of just masochism Mm. that I think just turns into another form of ego. Right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I always was the first one to criticize myself because I felt like it would protect me against other people criticizing me if I got there first. But all that does is you start to internalize it. And then you just, like I said, you give yourself a chip on your shoulder and you start to have imposter syndrome and wonder, you know, am I good enough for this gig? Or, well, I could never play at this club because I'm not as good as so-and-so. And And again, that attitude also just gets you nowhere and it it makes you lose sleep at night and it makes you question your achievements. So I think just knowing that, yes, you have to work hard. Yes, you have to do your time and do your homework, but you're capable of so much if you put your mind to it and you can't get sucked into the culture of just 
browbeating yourself all the time. <laughs> yeah. And doing it because you love to do it. That's why I'm excited for the material that's to follow for you mm. because you'll be free from the constraints of all kinds of unhealthy things that everybody has to consider when they're recording. But if you're doing it out of a different place, like it's really a free offering sort of, and that can be pretty powerful. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's funny. I've only done a few little recordings here and there this year. And I did just have this wonderful sense of freedom. And I tried things I wouldn't have tried. And just, it did feel like it was coming from a very different place from that prior feeling of, you know, intense anxiety about how it would be received because who cares? <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> music is so powerful and so moving, but it is stressful to be a musician. There's, there's no doubt. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I always crack up when people are like, Oh, it must be so relaxing to be a musician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My first year of marriage, my wife was a stage actress and I was a jazz musician and we called ourselves perspiring artists, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, it was tough. Uh, so is there anything you'd like to say that we haven't covered? I do have an album that's more recent than Living in Twilight, and that's a duo project with my dear friend Chad Eby, who's a saxophonist here in North Carolina, who also has done some work with the Lincoln Center. Yeah, that's an easy to listen to recording. It's just a little plug for me, but go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he and I have this project and it's called BFFs. <laughs> it's just on Bandcamp. And you can also contact me directly and we'll send you an LP because we ordered a big box of them and they're just sitting in our houses. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> if you no. want a collector's edition, but that's a fun album. It's just kind of live and completely unedited. Yep. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's very easy to listen to. And I thought it was great. So how can people find out more about your music? Where can they find it? Where can they find out more about you? So I do have a website. It's just arielpocockmusic.com. I think if you just type in arielpocock.com, it will take you there as well. And it is pretty dormant right now because of this year, but I promise that I will post on it <laughs> again in the future. But you can also get my recordings there and you can look at a picture of me if you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Okay, good. Well, seriously, thank you very much for taking the time Oh, thanks for having me. That was fun. You bet. I really enjoyed immersing myself in your music all week and having listened over and over and over to some things that was striking and I shared it with people and I said, listen to the color in this, listen to this. Can you imagine going from this genre to this genre? <laughs> it was really fun. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's been fun chatting today here too. So really a sincere thanks. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you listening out there too. Without you, of course, none of this would be worthwhile. If you would like to find out more about Piano Whisperer, or if you would like to hear earlier episodes, please visit pianowhisperer.org. Or you can also check us out on all the major streaming platforms. And that's it for now. So take care and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.